Today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash inside outside. Since Brad Feld is our guest this week, we suggest grabbing one of his audiobooks, Do More Faster or Startup Communities. Again, you can download your free audiobook today at audibletrial.com slash inside outside. Also, Dillashaw LLC. Not all attorneys are focused on startup legal issues. From setting up your legal entity to vesting agreements, term sheets, and more, Bart has experience and connections at working with startups everywhere and has been a trusted resource for startups in the Valley, Austin, and around the Midwest. On this episode, we'll be discussing work and productivity hacks that will help you get more done. We also caught up with Brad Feld to discuss his work, history as an entrepreneur, and startup depression. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the Valley is even harder. Inside Outside is a podcast for inside access to startups outside the Valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside of Silicon Valley. My name's Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Ardinger. I'm Paul Jarrett. And this week, we're talking about little tips and tricks that we use for productivity and to work more efficiently. How do you do more? How do you get more stuff done? Get done. Yeah, I think it's uh, it comes down to you know as a startup founder, it's your responsibility to work in the most efficient way possible and get the most out of out of your work, out of the stuff that you're doing. So, at my last company, I did a ton of writing and a ton of reading. So, a lot of my stuff uh, is around how to do those things more efficiently, and it's it, it involves like speech manipulation a lot of times and text manipulation. Sounds funky. <laughs> <laughs> so. I use the crap out of text to speech. Mm, yep. So I think I told you this thing, Paul. So, yeah. um, you know, if you're if if you're researching a blog post and you have to read, I, I think the best writers are the best readers, actually. Mm. So you have to read like crazy to get a really good blog post, and, and it comes. I don't down know about that because I'm I have really high reading comprehension. I'm a terrible writer. <laughs> Well, I don't think it's mutually. Ex- I don't think it's the converse. I don't think if you're a good reader, you're automatically. But also, a good like I immediately, you know, grammar is my how I rank quality of writing. So, right, right. like getting the idea out is probably good when I write, but actually making it flow and and be correct is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, um, maybe Matt's tips will help. Well, uh-huh. and, and part of this was born <laughs> Continue, out of the, Matt, yeah. Part of it was born out of the fact that I just kind of hate writing, mm-hmm. and and. Also, like, I don't hate reading. I like reading, but it takes so much time of my day. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I do is on my Mac, I realize that the Mac actually will speak text of any kind back to you. Mm-hmm. And so if you select it, I, you can go into speech and dictation in your Mac and your preferences. Right. And uh, what I do is because I'm not a speed reader, I actually set my um, my speed all the way up and I've trained myself to get used to, to that voice and the highest level. And now it's like almost too slow for me and the Mac doesn't even right. go to the point where I want to go. Yep. But you set your uh, text to speech dictation at the highest level and you train yourself to kind of speed read and then you select a massive block of text and put it on a hotkey. Mine is option S. So I hit option S when I highlight a big chunk of text and it'll just read it to me super fast. Yep. And that increases my comprehension to me because I can, I'm can i getting multiple senses. I'm seeing it, but I'm also hearing it. So you're reading it as you're listening to yeah, it. Yeah, I'm reading it as I'm listening to it. Um, I'm not multitasking. I'm actually yep. looking at it, yeah. but it just kind of pushes me to read faster than I would ever read. It's no such thing as multitasking. <laughs> Make-believe word. Make-believe. Yeah. Um, I actually 
did that when you started when you showed me that trick. I downloaded. I was trying to do it on my computer, but then I was listening to um, some audiobooks. And uh, whenever I walk the dogs, always have yeah. podcast or whatever. And uh, you can do that with most apps, like Stitcher app, yeah. uh, most podcast apps. You can actually speed it up. And mm-hmm. um, I got through uh, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to 100, very Zero fast. To one. Zero to one. Or I'm sorry, zero to one. <laughs> it's thinking it's of Drake song, it's zero to one. <laughs> um, it's a sequel. Those are both on my phone going back to back. Uh, it's the sequel, nice. Um, but I got through it really fast because I, I sped it up and, and now that's that's what I do. So yeah. thanks for that tip, Matt Boyd. Heck yeah. Well, my One of my biggest uh, efficiency thing is pretty much skip the meetings or at least block out your time, be much more deliberate about doing that. Like this is going to be my meeting block or this is going to be my time for XYZ, the more deliberate I think you are. And I think that's both difficult to do, uh, especially when uh, as a startup founder, you're getting pulled in so many different directions. But I think if you're more deliberate about it, you're going to get more done. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the greatest things about uh, having an event like an open coffee that's always permanently on the calendar is it's helped me have those kind of uh, first meetings rather than, you know, you don't want to have schedule a specific half hour, 45 minute block outside of your normal schedule. It's like, hey, meet me at Open Coffee. We can have our first conversation. Then I can tell you, um, you know, am I the right person to talk to or should I, you know, get you in front of somebody else? Uh, And it's just a perfect way to kind of block those, that time and use it more efficiently. Here's a question. So uh, when it comes to like time blocking and that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. should you take that into your personal life? What do you guys think about that? Yes. I, I think so. Yeah, I do. I'm, Interesting. I'm, I'm at a point in my life where if it is not on my mm-hmm. calendar, it is not happening, and that goes for like uh, date night. Um, it goes for like bum, getting my done. Bum, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> Brian, that's what's up. Um, like haircuts, hanging out with my family. You know, my my family is starting to understand that. They either send me a calendar invite or they go through somebody <laughs> at work and say, can you put this on his calendar? Yeah. So is there ever anything that or any blank times in your calendar where you just explode? Your head just explodes because I don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, actually, if now that I put everything on my calendar, there is there are blank times. I get mm-hmm. I get super excited. Well, I think it's important to build, <laughs> uh, it, I, yeah. to build that slack into it because if you don't have it, then if something does blow up your calendar or some kind of crisis event, you really have nothing. You can't move those blocks around. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I think it's important to have yeah. some of those blocked slack times. If that's yeah. A, oh, if no. That's I totally, yep. I t- totally understand. And not slack the app, right? No, not slack the app. This episode is brought to you by Dillashaw LLC. We caught up with Bart to hear more on his thoughts on fundraising. When it is finally time for a company to raise outside money from another investor, this is a process that's talked about over and over. It's what you know. It's what you hear about when you hear companies going out and financing. I think it's important for companies to keep in mind that this is a, a world in and of itself. And, um, you know, there's a lot of research out there and there's a lot of stuff that you can read. But fundamentally going into the financing, you want to make sure that your, your books are in order. Know that there is going to be an investor on the other end of this that's going to be asking you questions, that's going to be looking at your corporate records, that's going to be validating the ownership of your company, that's going to be tracing out the ownership of the IP, that's going to be looking at your employment agreements. Heading into that, you want to be prepared for those questions. You want to get all of your ducks in a row. And frankly, you want to be um, have all of those documents organized and, and ready to respond as soon as possible. One of the things that we've done like in motion this year is kind of uh, institute kind of walking meetings. So yeah. this is one of those great yep. ways to get kind of two for one. Um, so obviously exercise is one of those blocks of times. It's hard to schedule a lot of times. So if you block 
walking meetings into your schedule. So it's like, hey, rather than let's sit down in, in a conference room and, and sit down for 30 minutes, let's walk for 30 minutes and yeah. we can have the same conversation. I need to get back to those. And uh, I found that, I mean, obviously it's different based on the weather that. and that, but it's but I it's been really it, yeah. great uh, this time uh, in kind of, motion to yeah, get us out of the office. It and, brings and a new energy. Yeah. It brings a new energy to like what you're thinking about. So you, yep. you like... It gets you out of these four walls and kind of gets you, I don't know, mm-hmm. thinking yep. about the bigger picture. Then if I miss a run during the day or, or you know, I don't feel nearly as guilty because it's like I've got, at least I've got something in, yeah. you know. Um, so many of them that I want to share, but I think the the kick that I'm on right now, we uh, had our Blue Box talent show. <laughs> and, <laughs> nice. and actually there, there was a skit and I was mocked for this <laughs> like this series of apps because I like I just beat it into people's heads. I I like to be very deliberate with communication and know kind of like what buckets things need to fall into of like you know do I want this done or does it do I need it to be done etc. So I encourage everybody if you haven't got kind of your communication methodology down and this probably won't work for larger companies or if you've been doing things but what we found that has worked for us after three years of really pushing trying hard to use it is we use uh, three main communication tools which is Slack, Gmail and Asana. You guys have probably heard me say this before but we actually have it down as simply as Slack is when you want to communicate, Gmail is when you need to communicate and Asana is when it a task that has to be done. And so kind of like in our office, whenever you're communicating with everybody, like um, we push people to like, you know, where should this go into the Slack kind of office communication? Yeah. Is it an actual email or is this actually a task? And it forces people to decide needs, wants, et cetera. And I think, you know, my email and I was talking to a few other people, but our just email has dropped drastically. So now it's kind of like when you see an email from inside the office, like it's actually pretty, you know, important. pretty important. Interesting. Awesome. Um, I got to I gotta say Skitch too, because that, that was one yeah, yeah. that you told me years ago, Matt, and Skitch is just beautiful. So it's just like take a screenshot you can write over yeah. your screen. And I see a lot of our office communication being that, like just nothing more than an image. Somebody took a screenshot of something, arrow points at something, and like that is yeah. the email. Like I like what you're saying. Like I think that if I can boil it down to even past the communication side of things, I think it's like what I get from you and your team generally is that uh, there's a level of intentionality here. It's yeah. like you don't do anything that's not well thought out and planned out and yep. you kind of you like you you build a machine and then you work that machine. Yep. So like very specific types of communication yeah. go in their place um and you you communicate in a very uh in the same way over and over which makes everybody kind of on the same page and it creates a a sense of productivity and I love that. And I think a lot of people fall down on on that not only the intentionality but just putting the things in place because a lot of times that's the hard work it's like getting it up to you're going to be slowed down when yeah. you set these things up Absolutely. but after a while it does speed up the the process so a lot of times it's it's like taking a step back and saying okay let's make this a priority let's get this in in order and then have the tools in place that we can actually make something and go faster when you do it it's probably not going to work yeah, you know, yeah for, you for us tweak like it and, yeah. you know the slack is on a gmail thing that i'm talking about like that's taken us like yeah. three years to get to like we did hip chat we did yammer we've done <laughs> like, you name them all <laughs> we did do do.com and trello and Basecamp. like mm-hmm. i have been squiggle. through all of that stuff <laughs> squiggle 
Um, and those those happen to be the three things that work best for our That's team and what we need. Super cool. Social media, obviously, these new tools out there as far as, you know, I post quite a bit for, obviously, all the different things, whether it's in motion or inside, outside, or personal uh, Twitter and things like that. But, you know, look, finding the content, you know, there's a lot of different ways and tools you can use as far as RSS readers and Feedly and that that you can kind of scour the, the web for inform- in, interesting things to post. Uh, then you put it into buffer and then, you know, yep. it looks like you're tweeting yep. all day, but really it's it's a half hour process that I do in the morning. I get up, I kind of read through my 300 to 500 um, yeah. new posts that have come in and say, okay, this is a good one. This one I want to kind of share put it in my buffer and then it's just good for the rest of the day. You actually reminded me of, of one thing. So, uh, I've got a, a so if, if you're starting out on Twitter and you have very little followers and you want to gain followers and you want kind of a surefire way of getting at least a few followers every single day, guaranteed Start a podcast. Started, that's true. <laughs> things have been happening on my Twitter yeah, feed. I don't I know, know about you guys. Yep. Um, but I always panic that I, I said something or posted something I should and I'm like 17 people are what happened oh man and I'm like oh, exactly it's just a retweet <laughs> right um, but I use uh, Hootsuite and mm-hmm. basically what I do is I, I'll, I'll create a column for everything within my very specific vertical so we were working on remote working and, I, and I'll do telecommuting as one column so that means and, and it, that column will be a specific search on Twitter for that term so everybody on Twitter who is talking about telecommuting I have my own private Twitter feed for that very specific thing mm. um, remote working is another one and, and those types of things um, and then what I'll do is I, I don't pitch my company. I don't say like, hey, go try Squiggle because that's kind of gross yeah. or hey, go try this app or <laughs> right. whatever if you're in this position. But uh, So I would stay away from that approach. But what you do is just simply add value to what they're saying right. uh, or compliment them. So if, they're, if they come on and say like, check out, uh, you know, I'm uh, working on this new app for re- remote working or whatever, or like I got this blog post I found, check it out. You just say, thanks so much for that. That was really helpful to me. And then yep. you favored it. Yep. And do that consistently because that's not intrusive. You're not hurting anybody. Just favorite that stuff all the time. Yeah. And those people in your very specific vertical will follow you time and time again and you will just yep. gain a followership from yep. that. We, we've toyed around with that. I think, you know, there's something to be said too of like it doesn't just happen overnight like you know you're no, talking like grind, that yeah. that is like a long tail play yeah um but what uh, there's some different projects that I've worked on that are similar to what you're talking about and actually one pro tip that we found out was look for like negative emoticons oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. you know oh, that's and, interesting. and like add that to them so if somebody like for us is talking about vitamins and supplements and then it's like sad face or you know multiple dollar signs or whatever it is like we'll go after yeah. those people and i think that's a interesting way to sift through and if you think about twitter as just an ongoing conversation about many many topics across the world so if you build out your hootsuite to be these columns and and you have a good perspective on this vertical that you want to be an authority in Mm -hmm. that's an amazing way to just get a sense of what's going on in this world even if you don't do this kind of follow and want it for for tweets just do it anyway because you'll have a perspective on what you're working on Okay, I have to ask, and, I don't, and this might get cut out, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> what is the biggest kind of bullshit app that was a lot of hype around it, and you just, you know, mm. were like, ugh. And, and it might have worked for other people, but maybe not for you. Facebook. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Go, go on from there. Jeans.com. I forget whatever that joke was, <laughs> yeah, but I remember. Episodes long gone. 
Um, let's see. I know I try out so many apps and if I don't get a lot of use out of it, I, I'm quickly, you know, moving on, but I, I will try virtually anything out there. Cause I just like experimenting with yeah. seeing what else, yeah. what's out there. And, you know, so obviously with the meerkat periscope craze for the two weeks that it was yeah. first launched, that was kind of fun to play with. Um, I haven't gone back to it, so yep. I don't know. I yep. do think live video, there's something to that. Uh, and some of those tools that are coming out, but I need to get back into that. The hard, part, the hard part too is like sometimes it's a really great app, but then there's no future development, or mm-hmm. um, they get acquired and it goes to crap. Yeah. Yammer. Um, but like that, you know, yeah. it, or somebody comes out with a better mousetrap or or whatever it is. So. Mailbox was one of those things. That ah, I, that was mine. You stole see, mine. I, I still, I still use Do Mailbox you, uh, on a daily like, basis. I'm like, what is this? Why is everybody so high? I've tried to use it multiple times. And, I love and, it. I think even now you can just turn on some features within Gmail and it's like create your own mailbox. So that I'm taking yeah. mailbox. So you got right, Periscope right. and Meerkat. I got <laughs> mailbox. What about you? So I'm kind of going to say Basecamp. I think like Ooh, I used to use that. Blasphemy, like, my forehead. <laughs> and, and I, I, I hate to say that, but it's like there's so yeah. many better tools now. Is it 47 with, signals. The, yeah. 37. The 30, 37. My just, numbers are all right. <laughs> I hope you get all the time that I've messed up numbers today. There's a number of signals here, and I don't know how many. But, <laughs> uh, that's um, great. <laughs> um, so I, I think Basecamp, I think it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like their UI, like everything about the app now is just kind of. They were, but like they were. It was kind cutting of first. edge. It was yeah, cutting edge at one point. And yeah, I remember I was in the ad agency world and everybody was, you know, that was all the hype and everybody is using it. And there's there's still a lot of people stuck in that base camp mentality. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, like Asana is so, you know, or, <laughs> or whatever it is that you use. Trello. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, there's so many better tools out there than that. Um, I'm curious what everybody out there is using. Um, I know that there's, you know, Steve Blank's tools and there's a lot of places online and people share things, but I think um, a lot of the times you are scouring the most when you're first starting out. So I would love to hear, you know, whether it's the, uh, Startup Nebraska Facebook page wall thingy on Facebook or Twitter or our call in line, which I called in. <laughs> I'm really curious of what other people are using. And I would also say, um, change my mind on Asana. Like I, I like challenge it. I'm, I'm really curious on what people are using out there. We sat down with Brad Feld. If you're starting a company, working at a startup, or know someone who is working at a startup, you probably know who this guy is. Author of Startup Communities, Venture Deals, and several other amazing books for the entrepreneur. On top of all of that, he's one of the most respected VCs in the United States. Three years ago, you wrote um, the book Startup Communities. What are some of the things that you've learned or some things that have changed over the last three years um, with regard to startup communities? And kind of give us a preview of the book coming up. Yeah, so it's premature to say I'm working on it. I would, uh, I would say I'm thinking about starting to work on it. You know, the, the last book that I wrote, Startup Opportunities, just came out a month or two ago, and I don't think I'm going to w- start working on another book until 2016 at this point. Um, but you know, that that said, I have been uh, thinking a lot about uh, startup is and what will be whatever title I come up with for the book, Startup Communities, the sequel, and. You know, there are a number of things that on reflection I could have done better with startup communities specifically. Uh, and then there's a bunch of things that I've learned in the last couple of years um, that are emerging in lots of different places. So probably the two things in the book that I feel like are the weakest part of the book 
um, that I could have done a lot better with is the first, I demarcated between leaders and feeders uh, where entrepreneurs, as part of the Boulder thesis, entrepreneurs have to be the leaders of the community and the feeders are everyone else, which is government and university and service providers and nonprofits supporting entrepreneurship and big companies. What I didn't do was I didn't choose the words carefully enough and I didn't articulate the importance of both leaders and feeders. Uh, in some ways, I should have just called them apples and papayas or you know something like that. Because the feeders are incredibly important and the, the language for some people is interpreted as one up, one down, where somehow the, the entrepreneurs you know, are a more valuable part of the ecosystem and a more valuable part of the startup community than everyone else. And that then generates some weird second order effects. Uh, it's much more about who is driving the activity of the startup community and how the startup community functions and the need for this critical mass of, of entrepreneurs as leaders. So that, that's one. The other, which I, I both did a weak job in the book uh, and I've learned a lot about is, is how to think about government, especially local government in the context of a startup community. And in Boulder, uh, we've we've always had what I would describe, and I described in the book, I think, as a parallel universe between the startup community and city government, where they just they existed in the same physical space, but they just didn't interact with each other in any substantive or meaningful way. And my advice as a result was to startup community is uh, just you know just ignore city government, uh, assume they do no harm, behave constructively, but focus on building you know the startup community company. And there's lots of uh, things that you know the startup community and local government can do to engage in a constructive way, uh, but more importantly, what I didn't really uh, process at the time, and then subsequently did a poor job of articulating, was the importance of the startup community to a city and the fabric of a city, and as a result, um, the responsibility of the startup community over a long period of time. Uh, to engage constructively and thoughtfully with the evolution of a city because much of the economic, long-term economic vitality of a city uh, comes from startup and entrepreneurial activity. So th- those are the two big things I could have done a lot better job on. And in, in the next book, uh, I'll spend a lot of time on both of them. So outside of Boulder, what are some of the best ecosystems that you've kind of uncovered or seen uh, and why are they thriving? So... Best ecosystem is a phrase um, I, I don't like because I don't think it's a uh, it's a zero sum game where there's better and worse that matter. There certainly are, but I just don't think it matters that much. I have a uh, a deeply held belief that you can build a thriving, you know, sustainable, long term startup community uh, in any city that has a population of of, of at least seventy five thousand people. So you don't have to be a big city. Boulder's only 100,000 people. There's lots and lots of interesting startup communities all around the world, you know, whether they be in places like Omaha or I was just in Reykjavik in Iceland at a Startup Iceland event. That's the fourth year they're doing that. Uh, New York City, Kansas City, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Austin, right? Just in the U.S., there's a long list of really interesting places. And you can say, well, what about other big cities? And the answer is many of those other big cities, Atlanta, for example, has a very thriving startup community. You might not hear as much about it, 
But if you become part of the Atlanta startup community, all of a sudden you find that there's a richness of activity that's developed there along the lines in the last couple of years uh, that we talk about in startup communities. And then go around the world. I mean, you know, experience, my experience with Techstars, uh, we now have programs in London. We have a program in Berlin. Uh, we have a whole series of other programs uh, spinning up across uh, Europe and uh, some programs in Southeast Asia. We have a program in the Middle East about to start. So there's not really a constraint. The second part of your question is, uh, I think is really powerful and, and I like is sort of, it's easy to respond to what are they doing? And fundamentally, they're, they're doing, in many cases, what I wrote about in startup communities, right? There's a critical mass of entrepreneurs who have made a long-term commitment to their startup community, who are being inclusive of anyone uh, who wants to and can engage in the startup community. Uh, and they're doing stuff continually to, to engage and build that out while as entrepreneurs, you know, working first and foremost hard on building their businesses. I want to jump gears a little bit. Most of people that our audience probably knows you as an investor and you know, with Founder Group and, and Techstars and things along those lines. But obviously, you've got some startup chops yourself. What's your earliest memory of being an entrepreneur? Well, my, uh, I had three failed companies before my first successful company. Um, my first company, which I refer to often as my zeroth company, uh, was was one that I started with, you know, a dozen high school friends. I'm 49, so that so I'll date myself before the thing we were going to do dates me. We were all we were all super into Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, we were going to make uh, a very uh, lightweight video game um, that allowed you to be a dungeon master and manage, you know, a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Um, I got fired from that company before we really got it started and as a, as a founder. And uh, all of my friends went to University of Texas except me. I went to, to MIT in Boston. So I think it was I was going to go away and they were all going to go to UT. And somehow, you know, that dynamic, um, uh, that dynamic split that way. So that's thing number one, company zero. Company one uh, was a company called Martingale Software, which I started as a freshman in college with uh, three of my uh, fraternity brothers. It was when the Apple Macintosh had first come out, 1984. And we were gonna write, uh, we, had, we had an idea to write software that allowed you, if you put in data into uh, a spreadsheet, because spreadsheets existed, VisiCalc and Multiplan, uh, Excel sort of was coming out around the launch of the Mac. Um, but wasn't really prevalent yet. Uh, but we were going to create a very simple little program that if you entered data into a spreadsheet, you could then do all kinds of different graphs with that data. And, you know, we raised a little bit of money. We bought a, with $10,000, we bought a Lisa computer and a Mac, which you needed to do to be able to program the Mac. We bought an Apple developer kit. And, you know, we were all full-time students and, and we really struggled to, to get anything going. In that company, we did some consulting work and wrote some interesting software. And then before we shut the company down, we sold the, 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 the computers to somebody, uh, another fraternity brother, for $7,000. So we were able to return 70 cents on the dollar to our investor. My third company was a company called DataVision, uh, which I started with uh, a guy, uh, again, while I was in school. I think I was a sophomore now. 
And he was a guy I'd met through a previous company that I was a very, uh, the first employee of a startup of two, a husband and wife team. And we were writing software for something. The, the two of us for Data Vision came up with this idea to write software for something called cephalographic analysis, which the simple idea is it's, it, it, you took an x-ray of somebody's face and instead of drawing with a, a ruler and a protractor uh, lines to figure out the angles of the surgery you would then do for uh, facial, you know, any sort of facial surgery, facial reconstruction surgery, we did it on the computer. And, you know, that company, we had one big client, we had a research partner, um, and it eventually failed. And then my, uh, my, my fourth company, which was my first successful company, was a company that I started again when I was still in school. I was probably uh, a junior by this point a company called Feld Technologies, which uh, was a software consulting company. And we we basically took uh, myself, my partner who joined me two years later when we made the company bigger than just me. Uh, we built a business in the late 80s and early 90s for writing uh, business applications that were used on PCs and networked PCs well before there was an internet, well before there was client server. Back when it was very, very hard to you know have a piece of software that more than one person used at a time on a PC. Uh, and we built a, a nice couple of million dollar business that was very profitable, made about a half a million dollars a year profit, um, writing real software, not, you know, database applications, but pretty serious software for small and medium sized businesses um, and that in some cases could have 50 or 100 users, you know, of a software as their, their sort of business infrastructure around the time that PCs were starting to proliferate uh, on desktops everywhere. That business, we, we uh, funded it with $10 this time because the 10000 felt like too much to us. So this time we capitalized it with 10 um, We had 10 shares of stock. I had six. My partner, Dave, had three. And my dad, who was an advisor, had one. And we sold the company seven years later to a public company uh, for a couple million bucks. And when we sold it, we still had 10 shares of stock. Uh, so we never raised any money and we were, you know, cash flow positive business. But th 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 that was the beginning of my arc. But those were the first real uh, experiences. And Fell Technologies got bought in 1993. So to sort of date it, it really became more than just me doing consulting in 87. Uh, it was acquired in 93. And then I started investing as an angel investor in 1994. As a little kid, I was pretty, I played tennis and, and I, I, I didn't like to work when I was a little kid that much. And I remember I had a summer job. I, I, my summer jobs were always entrepreneurial. So, um, cause I get fired from anything that I actually had a real job from. And, uh, one of them was, uh, you know, on, on, on streets in the suburbs, how you have the street numbers painted on the sidewalk in front of me and a friend did that one summer. And I think we probably made, you know, 50 bucks. And I had a window washing business one summer. Um, I hate it, so I did everything I could to avoid uh, doing it. Um, and then my real, actually, it was, I guess it was entrepreneurial. My, my high school job at the end when I was a junior, most of, my, most of my friends when I was a junior and a senior worked for minimum wage in a restaurant or something like that. And, you know, these were like in the shopping mall. These were like $3 an hour jobs at the time. And what I did was I tutored for the math SAT. So I was very good at math. And as a junior, um, I started tutoring and there's a lot of demand. And so I decided I would only tutor seniors and I would only tutor girls. So 
Uh, my business was very selective and I was charging 30 bucks an hour. And I'd probably tutor three or four times a week. So for three or four hours a week and I'd make 100, 120 bucks. And my, you know, my friends would work 20 or 30 hours a week and make the same amount of money. Uh, and every now and then I'd have, uh, uh, you know, I'd have uh, two uh, seniors that I tutor at the same time. So, uh, you know, the, the, the puerile high school joke was that, you know, I had a business where I was willing to do threesomes. You know, the, the serious part about it, though, was that um, it was actually quite interesting because I, I was a very good tutor. I was very patient. You know, at the time, the SAT and standardized tests, there weren't, you know, like Kaplan and classes like that. So it was kind of this type of tutoring. And most of the girls that I tutored were struggling in math. And it was actually a really good experience for me to learn how to teach um, especially in a situation where I was a little bit socially uncomfortable, right? I was a junior, they were seniors, I was a boy, they were girls. You know, I had, I had a girlfriend at the time, but I was still pretty nerdy and awkward. Um, and so I was always a little uncomfortable and I had to, you know, learn how to do it in a way that was very accessible. So that, that, was, a good, that was a good early job. Excellent. And then you moved to becoming an investor in that. What's, um, what's the craziest pitch you've ever ended up investing in? Oh, I don't know. I've invested in all crazy stuff. Um, I mean, my 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 contemporary investments that I, I think are are pretty wacky that are doing very well. The probably most visible one uh, is a company called uh, Sphero, uh, which makes uh, they have two products right now. A product called Sphero, which is a robotic ball that you control with your smartphone. I have the first uh, prototype. You have, you have an early Sphero. And the, their second product was Ollie, which we like to describe as Sphero's crazy cousin. So it's more of a tube um, that, that can go a lot faster and does kind of crazy tricks. Uh, and Sphero is now, uh, for people that are Star Wars fans or have seen the trailer, the robot of, of the next Star Wars movie, the R2-D2 of that movie, is a, a robot called BB-8. And Sphero's next product, is, which is coming out in a couple of months, is BB-8. Um, and uh, the company is doing extremely well. It's about 70 people. It's based in Boulder. Um, they just announced a day or two ago that they closed a $45 million financing. Um, so they're, you know, they're well capitalized to be able to, to, to keep up with the demand that's coming, uh, coming their way. But, you know, that's a pretty wacky one. Um, you know, I was an early investor in a company called MakerBot, which uh, is a 3D printer company that got bought. Uh, a couple of years ago by a very big public company called Stratasys that was an industrial 3D printer company. And when I invested in MakerBot, um, it was essentially a low-cost desktop 3D printing company uh, that, that was an open-source hardware product. And if you think about sort of all of those things and lining up into the idea of could you possibly imagine that that would turn into you know, the market leader of a completely new generation of desktop products. I mean, I had, I and my partners at Foundry had the vision for that. Um, but the vast majority of the world thought it made no sense, especially since it was an open source hardware product, which meant that other people, you know, could contribute to, but also build off of, uh, of the, the hardware innovation. Excellent. So startups are hard and you've written a lot and been very open about stress and depression in, the, in startup founders and that. Do you think that the startup grind and depression and stress are kind of a natural part of the startup journey, or is it something that you know high growth founders and that have to experience and go through? Well, I think that I think it's two different things. One is I think many more human beings 
uh, are depressed and struggle with depression than uh, as a society we acknowledge because depression is so stigmatized. Um, and it's especially stigmatized in people who are in positions of leadership. So, you know, entrepreneurs and CEOs are leaders. And, you know, we're taught from a very early age that leaders have to be fearless and they have to show no weakness. And, you know, they have to always be out in front of everybody. Uh, and they, you know, they can't be fearful. And, and depression, because it's stigmatized the way it is, I think many people are afraid when they're struggling emotionally uh, at any level uh, to allow it to emerge. And, you know, what ends up happening, especially if you either are very anxious or depressed, which are just sort of linked to each other uh, under a lot of stress, struggling with disappointment or failure. Um, if you don't allow yourself to be vulnerable and exposed in those situations with people that you trust, it actually gets worse. And so you end up in this cycle um, that in some cases can be very exhausting, which will lead to depression. In other cases, uh, you know, you, you can get through, but it starts to become this uh, emotionally raw experience that over a long period of time uh, can lead to depression. So that's that's kind of piece one. Uh, the second piece is uh, when you start to allow yourself as a leader to be vulnerable and you create a culture of vulnerability, um, you do something uh, that what uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jerry Colonna, who has a, a great company called Reboot.io and has a podcast that everybody listens to this podcast should take a look at called the Reboot Podcast. And, you know, Jerry has a line that he says, taking your seat. And, you know, as a CEO, you take your seat and you are the CEO. You get to determine as a CEO what the communication pattern is with the people on your team. And I personally am incredibly uh, empowered by and uh, attracted to uh, CEOs and entrepreneurs who are able to, when they take their seat, be vulnerable and be exposed and acknowledge weakness and ask for help. And when they're struggling, uh, you know, not put on a shell. Uh, and, you know, when they come into a meeting, leave their armor at the door so we can have a real conversation about what's actually going on. Uh, and I, as, you know, a, a visible leader, do the same. And, you know, I've been very open about my own struggles uh, with with depression, uh, of which I had one a couple of years ago. Uh, and I think you can be very functional when you're depressed. You can be very effective as a, uh, you know, in terms of your work um, if you're in a safe environment. But if you're not in a safe environment, it's often incredibly distressing. And the behavior uh, that, that you operate under is, is often much worse. Um, I was going to say, so how can founders maybe build up that support system or that safe environment more effectively? Well, I think first and, and foremost is know yourself. And uh, in the same way that you work as a founder on your product or you work on your business, uh, as a founder, you should work on yourself. And, you know, as humans, we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses and we all have lots of opportunities to learn and grow and develop. And if you're working on yourself, one of the things you can start to do is think about what level of uh, uh, emotional exposure you allow yourself. You know, whether or not uh, you can connect with other people, whether they're, you know, co-founders or employees or your significant other or friends and connect with them at a level that's not just the surface level. And 
start by finding peers that you can develop these relationships with. So for me, early on, I was a co-founder of the uh, the the one uh, I lived in Boston, the, the Boston YEO Young Entrepreneurs Organizational Chapter. And when I moved out to Boulder. I was the founder of the the Boulder YEO Chapter. And you know what I did was I discovered my peer group, other entrepreneurs who had started companies who were you know roughly my age that had real businesses, and you know, lo and behold, they were all struggling with the same kind of shit I was struggling with. And the first, you know, the first thing that happens is you realize you're not alone when you find your peers. Then you learn how to trust and talk to them. And then you learn how to go on the, this journey. And, and to quote Jerry uh, Colonna again, the journey is one of uh, essentially continuous radical self-inquiry. So you're, you're constantly, as part of the process of being an entrepreneur, I'd say being a human, uh, going through this endless, uh, endless process of learning more about yourself by being inquisitive. The last is I, I encourage um, founders uh, and CEOs, especially, uh, to seek out a coach. Um, I have a coach for my. I, I run marathons. I have a coach. His name's Gary. I wouldn't imagine trying to train without a coach. Uh, I think a really good CEO coach can be incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, especially uh, when you really feel like you're struggling with something for the first time, don't know how to deal with it, and really don't know where to go with it. Excellent. We've got a couple more minutes, so two quick questions. What excites you about the next 12 months? Well, the next three months, I'm really excited about summer because I like summer and uh, I I like winter too, but I, I, I was tired of being cold and I like being hot and sweaty now, so I'm very happy it's summertime. Um, you know, I, I turned 50 in December and I, I'm definitely in my own personal exploration of what the next phase of my life will be. And the way I describe that is uh, my wife, Amy and I are the same age. And we talk about, you know, if we're, uh, if we're lucky and sort of live a normal, normal life and, and are healthy for the duration, we probably have 30 good years in us. You know, we could be you know, the lights could go out tomorrow. We could last longer. We might get lucky and the singularity comes and I can upload my consciousness, which I'd love to do and I'm first in line for. Um, but let's let's assume I got 30, 30 good years left. You know, what, what, what do I spend that time on? And, you know, I've got a long-term commitment to the work I'm doing today as, a, as an investor. So there's no immediate shifts, but there's a lot of thinking about how to do that work in a way that's satisfying over a long period of time. In terms of specific technologies and projects, uh, the I would say the two things I'm most excited about right now are the theme of human-computer interaction, which we have many investments in, uh, which is built on the premise that the relationship between humans and computers is radically changing and going to continue to change over the next 20 years in the same way it's changed over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and then the other is um, I... I'm very, very long-term optimistic on the impact of startups on society and the way we work generationally. I think there's a huge shift from the organizational man and the hierarchy to much more of a network uh, in terms of how businesses work, in terms of how businesses interact with each other, in terms of how cities and communities work. I'm involved in a bunch of that kind of stuff. Techstar is probably front and center in terms of that. Uh, for me, and I just I, I'm very excited about the way that that evolves. 
Awesome. Final question. If you could give only one of the many books that you've written, you know, Venture Deals, Do More Faster, Startup Boards and that, and you had to give only one uh, book away, who, uh, what would that be and why? Well, it depends on, it depends on who it is, too. Um, I think the most important of the books uh, uh, I've written is Startup Communities. So for anybody who's thinking about startups and how to build and ramp and scale their startup community, how to engage with it, how to think about it, uh, I'm very, very proud of that book. I think it's very, you know, it has broad impact. I think the most useful book I've written uh, is the one I wrote with Jason Mendelson, which is Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Your Venture Capitalist. Uh, and if you're, you know, you've started a company and you're thinking about raising angel money, you're thinking about raising a Series A round, a, you know, first institutional round, um, uh, you know, I've, I've been told many, many, many times that that book is uh, indispensable. So uh, there were there were two instead of one. That's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Brad Feld for taking time to catch up with us. If you have a question for us this week, don't hesitate to reach out on Twitter at the IO Podcast. And if you haven't already subscribed on iTunes, you should probably go ahead and do that now. And it's okay. I'll wait. Music for this podcast is brought to you by bensound.com. Until next time, go build something big.